these other women that weren't really used to being the best, but they got amazing. Um, they became runners that I always wanted to be like. And so for me watching them, I thought, you know, they were all, I realized they were all asking themselves, why not me? And I was able to ask myself off of watching them, why not me too? Friday. This is Ali. Hi, it's Anne. Welcome back to the show. We sound really chill right now. What's the reason for that? <laughs> um, I just, we, well, I ran 18 miles, you ran 20. <laughs> and we had an interesting exchange afterward when we were done with our 20 and then <laughs> actually had eaten already, refueled, and then we're, we had to get back to do this recording we talked about how do we measure success of a long run? Let me paint this, the picture a little bit. So we were standing on the corner of Broadway and 113th and you asked me that question. And we both looked at each other and we said, you measure this success of a long run based on whether or not you have to call a lift to take you home <laughs> from brunch. <laughs> so by those standards, we had a very, very successful long run. Yeah. We don't know if that is a measure of success, but we just made it one. Yeah, we made it So up. please go with it. It was the longest I had run in two years, yeah. so that was cool. But it kind of destroyed me. <laughs> Definitely put a dent in the system, right? <laughs> you <laughs> had to call a lift. I know. <laughs> yeah. And then while the lift was coming, I was like, here's another measure of success. We're in the shade. Can we go stand in the sun because the body's not warming up <laughs> fast enough? <laughs> and then I was doing the... I'm so hungry, but I feel sick because I can't eat and I couldn't, I could hardly eat my brunch, but then I was getting hungry. So just eating, but not really and thinking about what the next meal was going to be. And so the solution was black and white cookies. <laughs> People are getting an all out glimpse into our long run brain. <laughs> like our Lyft driver was by like, who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> they make no sense. I know. <laughs> we <laughs> what was the coffee we had? Oh my God. It was really good. Uh, actually, we haven't spoken about coffee in a while. Uh, we have a new favorite. We've definitely, from everything we've had, we have put ozone coffee on top of our list. It's really good. Yeah. The only problem is I can only get ozone in London. So I bring beans from there every time. It's actually a company from New Zealand. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Um, they have two locations in London, one in Shoreditch. But I think both of us are stocked up on that supply because... I brought up brought back enough yeah it's really good it's smooth what do you think about doing a coffee giveaway because both of us are overflowing at home oh my god that's a really good idea okay let's just drop that and not do anything <laughs> right now because we're on long run brain <laughs> no it's a great idea we can do all the details on instagram okay we'll do that so you're going to london tonight so maybe can you bring a bag back an ozone bag for ozone, giveaway, which mm -hmm. we'll do as a giveaway, and we'll make a fun contest out of it. Love that. All right, listeners, look out for that. Speaking of Instagram, speaking of supporting this podcast, please, if you haven't become a patron yet, please do go to Patreon, p a t r e o n dot com slash Chill Track Friday, two dollars a month. Yeah, <laughs> we've got a little um, little bit of support coming in, so thank you for those of you who have already signed up. And 
thank you for everyone who showed up to our live recording with the Distance Project NYC Women and Gordon Bakulis as our guest moderator at Custom Performance. Was that last Sunday? It was last Sunday. <laughs> wow, it feels like a month ago. That's amazing. Oh my God, it was so much fun. We had we had a full house. Mm-hmm. Everybody showed up, then some who had signed up for the event, and we had an amazing conversation. There's a live recording on Facebook, and then we released the episode as well. Um, it wasn't last Sunday. It was two Sundays ago because we released the episode last Friday. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't checked out the episode, it's about four badass women who kind of talk about their overall journey and also their journey towards the Olympic trials qualifier. We also talk about some of their fun stuff in uh, in terms of the running shoes that <laughs> I, I really enjoy that conversation mm-hmm. and everyone's perspective on the uh, Nike next percent. Um, and we also talk about some really important stuff in women's running. Well, speaking of important things in women's running, our guest today is Lindsay Krause from the New York times. So we interviewed Lindsay in January. We're now in February. So this intro is a little bit after the fact. So since we interviewed her, she had a, um, film of hers that she's been working on with the New York Times and the op-ed documentaries go to Sundance. And she also published a beautiful, beautiful essay in the New York Times called I'm 35 and running faster than I ever thought possible, which if you haven't read that, we do encourage you to go to the Times. It was published on January 31st. And it's just a really beautiful, I mean, I sent it to my family as an explanation of why I run. It's just a beautiful article. And it's, you know, written in a time when there's so much happening in women's running. And if you scroll to the bottom of the article, there's a photograph of um, a group of women waiting at the finish line and cheering people on until the clock strikes to 45 and the qualifying standard for the marathon trials is two, two, 59, sorry. And, um, it's just incredible to look at this. I mean, I started crying when I saw the photograph within the article that she was writing, cause it's just the, the amount of support that people have. And what's so interesting is like, so you have the people that have just made it in under, and then one second later, is the people who have just missed it. So it's like this huge, it's such a, it's a powerful moment that I think she describes so well in terms of what we put behind what we're doing, and man or woman, but this is obviously towards mm-hmm. the, the women's Olympic trial qualification. Um, so anyway, we're so glad that we had the opportunity to interview Lindsay. And um, for those of you who don't know, she, um, she's been with New York Times for the past eight years producing films short opinion documentary series and she is the journalist who worked on the equal play series with the times and it was three documentary series the first was nike told me to dream big until i wanted a baby and that was felissa montano and then the second one was allison felix my own nike pregnancy story and the third one was i was the fastest girl in america until i joined nike which was uh, mary kane's story and that came out in december and actually ended up being one of the, I think, 50 top viewed on the New York Times, which is a big deal. Yeah. And in sort of as a result of all of these uh, exposés, there have been a lot of things that have been happening at these big companies that hold such so much power in the industry in terms of making changes to make it an equal playing field for women. It's not just in running. It's across the board with women's soccer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's so important for this for for this work you know to reach as many people as possible so if you haven't like either watched any of these documentary series if you haven't watched any of these documentaries or haven't read some of these articles i'd really highly recommend doing that 
with that, we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, we want to have so many different kinds of conversations with you, but I want to start at a very specific place. As I was doing research for like getting ready to know you more, I went to your Twitter and I saw a pinned tweet. Um, and I'm going to read the tweet. And it says, oh boy. <laughs> shoot for the moon. And if you're lucky, you'll land with two PRs in one race. 253 marathon today and 124 half. Then came the struggle. I always wanted to be someone who could run like this. Can't believe I am. And there's there's a picture in the tweet uh, of you that has the perfect, uh, your expression is like that perfect post-marathon fatigue combined with disbelief plus elation. Can you talk about how that, what happened, how that came about? Sure. I mean, I had a pretty interesting year overall, I'd say, where... I think my story reflects the stories of a lot of Americans and particularly American women right now where obviously we're having a breakout year. It started in 2017 with I think, well, it started before that, but I think on the sort of broad level, Shalane Flanagan being the first woman to, American woman to win the New York City Marathon in three decades and kind of passing that baton to Des Linden, um, becoming the first American woman to win Boston in um, three decades. It's just, it's a renaissance of, or in, in many ways, a, na- a naissance of a birth, a rebirth or a birth of American distance running for women. And At this point, we've seen that trickle down extend to sort of the other professional women and sort of the sub-elite women um, with, I think, more than 500 American women qualifying for the Olympic marathon trials right now. That's double 2016. It's insane. Um, And for me, in the past year, watching all those women, a lot of whom, like me, also were not uh, front runners ever. I mean, for me, like, I, I don't even know if I've really won more than one or two races, which is kind of crazy. Um, I've always just kind of been, like, I'm so forgettable that I'm not even on a lot of the rosters for my college distance team. Um, but I saw all these other women that weren't really used to being the best, but they got amazing. Um, they became runners that I always wanted to be like. And so for me watching them, I thought, you know, they were all, I realized they were all asking themselves, why not me? And I was able to ask myself off of watching them, why not me too? And from there, I, I had an absolutely breakout year. I, I broke three hours last year. I was already you know, better than I thought I could be at the same race CIM. And it was pretty amazing to see that this year, I was like, I'll just go for the OTQ. I'll go for the Olympic marathon trial qualifier. And I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard because I got injured in the spring immediately starting to try. But I wasn't so hard on myself. I was just like, you know what? I'll do it in the fall. And... I couldn't even run one mile of what was necessary at sort of the 617. Like, that to me is a sprint. But I was just sort of like, I'll trust this process. I'll just keep going. And I finally, you know, I I had a pretty brizzy work year, but I did get better. And I did get faster. And I got faster than I ever could. And that was pretty amazing to me. The workouts themselves started to be enough. Like, I had one workout where I was like, if this is – if this is all I'm left with in terms of the memory, like mm-hmm. that's enough for me. I'd run a ten, I'd ran ten miles, and then another ten miles at six twenty-five, and then a two-mile cooldown. So that was like, to me, I've never done something like that before. And I was like, okay, I know, like no matter what, I've already transcended and broken through and be better than better than I ever could. And so what was really exciting to me about that was that when I realized I'd become a runner that I'd already wanted to be, or that I'd always wanted to be, um, you know, this is better than any, um, I, 
I'm just I'm just so much faster than I ever thought I had any business even dreaming of being, and I thought that was amazing. It made me realize, you know, I'm 35. I've already gotten through a couple of injuries where I thought everything for me physically and athletically was done, um, and I basically almost gave up. And then I realized as I was able to kind of even just like dare to dream, I guess, to be this fast athletically, I thought, what else in my life could I keep doing when I thought that maybe I couldn't? And I think that was what was really exciting to me. It made me realize that um, for so much of our lives, or at some part in our lives, like whether it's high school or it's college or it's right afterwards, we become almost like who we are and everything around us gets built up around that. It becomes really hard to change. Um, you kind of have to ask for permission. They kind of like keep you that way. And that there's nothing wrong with that. Like I was really happy with where I was. Like there's nothing wrong with it. It was really good. But I always kind of thought maybe I could do more, but I didn't know how to do that. And so for me, training for the marathon made me realize actually I can be better than I thought I could be. Like I can do this. Um, and in doing that and having that realization, I think like professionally I was able to also kind of break out in a way that I hadn't totally before. You know, I'd, I'd had my front page articles, I'd had my most read articles in the New York Times, like I'd had some good articles that um, about distance running, which is something that I've always thought America could see in a different way. But for me, um, in in actually kind of realizing that I could break out athletically, I was able to almost like try harder professionally and kind of think like, what have I left on the table? And so I was able to, um, you know, I reached out to Alicia Montano and I was like, I know that this issue around maternity is something that we haven't talked about. Like, I don't just want to do a story on this. I want to change it. Like, I want to reveal this information. I want to expose it. I'd already reported on it, but I was like, I think we can just do this in a different way, um, in a way that really has an impact, in a way that starts a national conversation, in a way that does change a policy. And I didn't know that that was true in the same way that I didn't know I could go run this fast in a marathon. Um, but that worked. That started an amazing conversation in a national way and got people really thinking about what we're not doing when it comes to women. Um, then we got Allison Felix, who'd been you know, off the record, kind of sharing her story in a way that she'd never really spoken out in a way that was of extreme risk for her. Um, so that was amazing. And then Mary Kane came to me and wanted to share her story. And you know, I told her, I was like, um, either no one's going to watch this or everyone's going to watch this. And then that wound up being, um, I, I wound up producing the most viewed article um, that the New York Times opinion section produced last year. It was amazing. Um, it was the 42nd most read item on the entire New York Times um, in an impeachment year about women in sports, which is something no one ever talks about. Um, and, and it also, it showed a woman in an unconventional way, kind of like speaking out in a strong way. Like we don't always do that. And so for me, I know this is a super long way of answering your question, but the intersection of um, kind of what I was able to do with my body and what I was able to do, um, I guess, with my mind, uh, it was a really, really important realization for me that I could do a lot more and that things could kind of go the way that I wanted to. So it wasn't just about the race. It was about everything. It was about um, being, being the kind of person that I always wanted to be but never even really dreamed that I could. Wow. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you. You're, you just exude, when I listen, I got shivers many times listening to you share your answer. And 
it just shows how powerful you are and how powerful the work that you're doing is. And I love the intersection of the body and the mind because they're so interrelated in a race. And then to be able to apply everything that you learned from your training to your career and having them blossom. Um, I have so many questions based on what you asked, which we were going to ask you anyway. So you, I'm sure Ali does too. Yeah. I have two questions. One is easy to answer. One is a longer answer. The first question is, your first marathon, what was your first marathon time? It was a 3.23. Okay. That, I just think that it's really nice for people to hear like how yeah. much room there is for improvement. I mean, that's I think that's so important about the marathon, and that's even why I bothered to try this. I was like, I... You know, again, I'm, I'm a middle-of-the-pack runner. I'm not that good. Um, or at least in my mind, I'm not necessarily. And that's why, again, when I when I did run that 320, the 253, it was like, I was like, I was a different person. Um, because, again, I'm so used to being, uh, you know, a, three, a 323 is good. It qualifies yeah. for Boston. It's not, I'm not saying that you know, uh, that I've got nothing, but it wasn't just talent. It was something yeah. else. And I think that's what people need to hear too. Not that we all can just like go become Olympians or even go qualify for the trials. I failed, like I didn't do it. But what was really important to me was sort of that I got better than I ever could be. And I think that's that's important for people to understand that, that, that it may not work out, but it's possible. That's great. Was there a moment in the race when you thought to myself like, wow, even if like I have a, a, a bad patch I'm still going to make sub three. Like, did you have that moment of realizing what you were doing? Yeah. I mean, I'd already broken three hours the year before. I had two really different races between the year before and this year. I was in real, a lot better shape. Well, actually, I had a, I had a difficult buildup this year because I guess the one trade-off with when you do work really, like I had a, I think it's important for people to realize that, yes, you can do all this stuff, but there's a cost. <laughs> it may be <laughs> to your mental health. It may be to your physical health. It may just be that you had to prioritize certain things and other things fell by the wayside. And for me, I did have to work really hard. Um, and it my training did take a hit. Um, I was trying to run in the 80s, um, like 80 miles a week. And one the week that the Mary Keene story came out, um, I was supposed to, it was one of my peak weeks. And so I was supposed to run 90 miles and I only ran 50. Um, and I, I think I only did one workout and it was a short workout. So going up to the starting line, I didn't know what kind of fitness I was in. I knew I wasn't totally prepared. Um, so I, and I, I did, I, I PR'd in the half marathon in that race, which I knew was risky. Um, I went out a little faster than I wanted to because I was running with a woman I met on the bus and she, I, I knew on my best day I could break 250. Um, but as I started to fade in the race, it was amazing to kind of do the math and say, if I just hold on, if I just hold on, I'm still going to get a massive PR. So just don't drop out. Um, and you know, you're running past yeah. all these women and they're vomiting on the side of the road and you know, they're, they're faster than me, obviously they were ahead of me. Um, but they've so in many ways, better athletes than me, even they're not finishing the race. Clearly, you know, you just got to keep yourself yeah. going, but yeah, it was an incredible feeling to, to in the middle of the race, almost like celebrate myself while also kind of wanting to join those women on the side of the road. But yeah, when I crossed the finish line, I was sort of dazed, but, but elated. That picture, as Ali pointed out, that picture is beautiful. It just expresses so much yeah my fiance took that I think he was relieved that I was happy because <laughs> everyone tracking me kind of saw my time slow down and yeah. slow down I think they were like what's her mood gonna be like yeah but and it can go it can go into like the 20 minutes 30 minutes 40 minutes it can get yeah. precipitously bad yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you held it really together yeah I mean I would never take a running my best time for granted and be to me that time is just objectively fast I know it may not be to other people but I was so happy yeah. how could I ever be frustrated congratulations <laughs>
Thanks. Can we go back to, yeah, I have like so many other <laughs> questions. I'm like, oh my God, what do I ask? Um, can you go back to the moment of, actually, I'm going to switch back to the work itself. You mentioned sure. like, um, what triggered you to contact Alicia uh, Montano? Yeah, yeah um, I've been a, um, sort of like on the side writing about distance running for a while at the time because I've always been one. I've always thought that the stories that I'm interested in, we should write about more. And so back in... Uh, you know, I've always tried to write the kind of stories that I want to read. And um, back in 2014, I, you know, I've always been a runner. It was kind of when the kind of the first round of friends started having babies and they were coming back and, um, you know, a lot of times faster than ever. And so I wanted to write a story about that. And I, of course, noted that it was happening from the professional levels on downward um, to, you know, my my friends to afterwards. Like, I guess my friends are kind of in that, like, sub three, but certainly not professional or elite runners for the most part um so I wanted to kind of write about again like that that this change in American women and how it's manifesting um for us as athletes and uh so I interviewed you know Kara Goucher, Lauren Fleshman, Alicia, sort of the usual suspects and of course they told me about the amazing physical elements but they sort of also whispered um you know, the, the full story, the truth, which was that while they were publicly celebrated by their sponsors, they were um, privately financially penalized for that, or at the very least at risk for it. There was no way to get protections around maternity written into a sports contract. It was still very much that uh, if you had a baby, your career as an athlete was over, you were no longer serious about it, and um, you were not on the scene anymore. At the very least, you weren't going to be paid. And that that is an option for a sponsor, I guess, but it's not fair to be marketing you um, to to say that you're bringing value to the company um, in one way, but just not through your medals. Um, clearly, the company recognized that there was value in this, just in a diff- albeit in a different way. And so I knew that, and I actually wrote it into that story, and no one really cared about it, like the way that I wrote it. So um, you know, my editors also read it, but no one really thought it was that interesting, but I did. And especially after the attention around Serena Williams having a baby, um, and especially that ad campaign, Mm -hmm. um, the Dream Crazy ad campaign, um, I thought, first of all, that they must have changed their policy. Uh, And second of all, I thought maybe there's an opportunity to kind of directly indict an industry that, again, is, is marketing this... Um, this incredible thing, this crazy thing, but isn't necessarily following through. Um, and certain athletes said that they weren't even sure if the company like necessarily knew that this was like a cohesive plot against women. Like I don't <laughs> think that is what it was. But at the same time, the athletes were powerless to change this on their own. So I thought, what if we take the New York Times, where where I work, I'm a, I'm a producer and an editor and a writer in um, the, our opinion section. I was like, we have this cool new arm um, called Opinion Video, where we are you know, doing our own opinion journalism, uh, doing our sports journalism. I don't know that necessarily my boss, who's, who really just kind of believed in me, he was like, I don't think he set out to necessarily, like, do something on women's sports this year, but I really wanted to, and he really believed in me to do what I thought was interesting and relevant. He says that people who follow their passions tend to, it tends to lead somewhere interesting, and so he um, had me reach out to, like, you know, he just let me do the journalism around it. I reached out to Alicia um, and did all the reporting, which was really hard. It's really hard to prove that something isn't happening, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're not going to the people that aren't doing it. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, you can't just go to Nike and say, hi, is it true that you're not paying your um, your female athletes, which I did do at the end, but they didn't answer the question. Um, 
So, and then I reached out to, then, it, then as I was reporting this out, Allison Felix had a baby. And in my mind, I was like, well, this ruins the whole project um, because Allison is certainly being paid. Um, and even if it's not in her contract, she's definitely getting everything she wants. So I reached out to her just to make sure that everything in my reporting was wrong and that I needed to you know, abandon the project. And it turned out that the opposite was true. Allison was... Um, you know, one of the most decorated athletes in track and field history, and um, she was in one of the most vulnerable positions of her life. And it was really horrible to to talk to her brother, Wes, who is also her agent, and just kind of hear about how difficult that was for her. Um, and naturally, she didn't feel comfortable going on the record, but he, between she and him, um, they were able to um, validate everything in the reporting. And so, you know, we... We hired a, um, a great videographer, Max Cantor, who was able to kind of come up with this concept. We wrote out a script um, that evoked the emotional language of um, of a Nike ad and almost hijacked that to turn to bring those same emotional undertones and that same inspiration on its head by exposing the truth. And so it was not only the journalism. Um, it was sort of the creative approach that we were able to undertake, I think, to really get people to really feel this story and feel this this issue. And then, um, of course, we cast Alicia in it and were able to really show, share her story that way. Um, and then, we, of course, we, we um, shared Allison's story as well once it, once it felt more safe for her to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Using the word safe is such an interesting... I mean, it's a huge part of the project. I mean, there must have been... Was there hesitancy in the beginning? That must have been really hard to... Yeah, I mean, it was scary for me because I'd never done a project quite so ambitious before. Um, and I was doing it... Uh, I don't know how to... It's like I, I was trying to figure out how to do something really new, I guess. Um, and it was sort of me versus Nike in some ways. Like, Alicia didn't work there anymore. Um, but, you know, we went to our lawyer, David McCraw, and he was asking us about all the ways that we validated it and embedded it. And I, and I think it all passed muster clearly. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I, I think I reached out to everyone and got everyone on the record. And of course, no comment from Nike, but it's still, it's sort of me versus a multi-billion dollar corporation. And I'm like doing this in my bedroom, like at night, you know, mm-hmm. in some ways. And um, so it was tremendous. And also, I was like, I hope everyone watches this because if they don't, it makes us more vulnerable. And it also makes the people who are speaking out more vulnerable. Um, and I really didn't want anything to happen to them. So, you know, when Kara finally went on the record around it, which, of course, she has, she's got so many things that, you know, she's she's dealing with Nike on. Um, I don't know that this was necessarily something that she wanted to also add to her portfolio mm-hmm. um, of, of, you know, potentially litigious matters. And when she did, she was like, well, the New York Times lawyers back me up, and we don't do that. What we do do is I, all I could tell them was that if Nike sues you, um, we can put that on the front page of the of the New York Times, or at least like you know wherever I have control over, I can make sure people know that and for that truth as well. Um, and of course, a company suing a a woman over wanting to be paid while she you know runs for you that that would be a questionable thing to mm-hmm. or at least something that Nike's uh consumer base might want to know about so I I would be able to put that out for its news value but I but we can't back someone up um from a legal perspective so that was always very stressful for me how much of this like so 
maybe this is more of a personal take question for like what your personal take is. As, as, I, as I was reading through the articles and kind of I listened to you talk about this on another podcast as well, it reminded me of an interview I, have lis- I had listened to with Carol Bartz, the former CEO of um, Yahoo, and she was talking about the endemic issue of having so few females in, in the C-suite and in the leadership position, mm-hmm. uh, which... And I guess her point was, and just a few statistics around this, right? Like over 40% of MBA grads are females, but Fortune 500, there's only yeah. 5%, right? Uh, companies that are run by women. And she sort of talked about, even if you do break the glass ceiling, you're expected to act like a man all of a sudden if you are up there. Um, and But obviously <laughs> that puts you in a position where you have to make a choice about do you do you know if you want to become a mom then what does that mean for you in that in that position mm-hmm. it's a little different obviously for you know the athletes and in in terms of nike but how much of that do you find just the overall gender equality um question comes into play in this well, i mean obviously yeah. gender equality is a massive issue in in all of this and it's the underpinning um, of, of the project that we undertook overall, I think um, what we were hoping people would draw a parallel between and which everyone did was that this isn't about Olympians being paid while they have babies. This is about if they're not paid, who mm-hmm. who has that security? Like if they don't have that security, and Allison made that point, if Allison Felix, the most decorated track and field athlete of all time, cannot get maternity protections after so many career wins, mm-hmm. who can? Um, and is our society, do we want to tolerate that? Do we want to do, it's sort of a choice at some point. It's a moral choice. It's an ethics choice. And all we wanted to do was kind of expose that information and have people say, like, is this acceptable to you? Um, it was interesting to me that after we did put out the stories with Alicia and and Allison, a, a congressional committee did reach out to Nike. They wrote a letter to Mark Parker, who was the CEO at the time, and they said, um, you know, they, they it was a congressional inquiry where they wanted to know more information, and they said that this is not keeping with um, with Nike's values. And I, I, I almost laughed a little bit when I read that because I was like, actually – Nike is a for-profit company. It's completely keeping with Nike's values. What the question is, is this keeping with America's values? And you're the lawmakers. You should be actually tackling this yourself. It's not necessarily Mark Parker's um, job to, to, to deal with this, unless, of course, we want to make sure that there are more women in these CEO, in these C-level positions, um, in which case, hopefully, they're not just behaving like men because they feel like they have to. Hopefully, they're also paving the way to make it easier for the women who follow them. Um, but in the meantime, perhaps we want to use this information to potentially change laws and change policy. And I thought the Olympians who, you know, America tends to find, you know, tends to kind of reify, we, we, we adore these athletes, we revere them. Um, we need to protect them as well. Yeah, it's really important. And it's just such a natural, organic, awesome job that you did in terms of having done the article in 2015 with Alyssa and then bringing it back up to the forefront. Because before then, it's like, people didn't really question it or wonder or th- maybe even think about it until you hear that as we're discussing, these people that are so decorated and so talented are don't have any security, and it's yeah. I mean, part of me, I, I find it a little haunting that 
you know, this isn't my full-time job. Um, there aren't a lot of women with this job. There aren't a lot of women who are sports reporters. There aren't a lot of, you know, I, I think journalism in general is still working on gender as a whole, but um, the sports sports sector of, of journalism is certainly still working on that. And it does upset me that if if I hadn't done that, then still wouldn't have changed. And then we might think that nothing is changeable still. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's never really been my job, but I did have a little bit more power and influence at the times at this stage in my career. And I, I have been willing to, you know, put in sort of a, a lot of work to to stay in tune with the issues that I care about, um, in addition to my regular job, which is producing the short documentary series, Opdocs. Um, which is sort of our our festival oriented like awards oriented series. Um, like we have a we have a documentary that's um, uh, nominated for an Oscar right now and best short documentary. Like that that's my real job and um, all of this stuff is stuff that I just care about. And I wish that women didn't have to just do this because we care about it. Mm -hmm. I, and I think that some of the work that I have done, I think now the company does see that this is a major area worthy of investment, that it is serious journalism, that it, that the intersection of gender and culture and sports, it actually is a business story too. Mm -hmm. And um, and hopefully that paves the way for more. Yeah. I want to ask you before, I want to ask you about the um, film that's going to Sundance, but before that, mm -hmm. one quick question. Have you, have other people come to you after reading these and seeing these pieces just to kind of further validate or share their experience with you just from like a therapeutic perspective, not necessarily wanting oh, to, to do a story? Yeah. I mean, to me, actually the most, the most rewarding and also in some ways, um, I guess like provocative thing that's happened to me is actually a lot of girls like high schoolers and younger reach out to me now like on Instagram or Twitter they send me DMs and they say like I want to be like you I want to be a sports oh. journalist like you one day and it's hard because they ask me like how can you how can they be like me and I don't really have an answer for them um I I think that the world does have more work to do in terms of making it possible to do work like this that matters um and but I I like that now they know that it's possible. Like I wish I, I mean, I, I think about this all the time. I write about it too. I think the, just as the athletes, like we saw this with the women's world cup, just as they kind of have to work twice as hard and be perfect in order to kind of have a seat at the table. Um, I've felt a little bit like I've had to do that too at times and, um, so be it, but I hope that it gets easier for other people as well behind the, you know, that come after me. Yeah. Well, you're inspiring a good answer and a good um, articulation of what you're saying is or example is going from a 322 to a 253. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anything is possible, as you said. Absolutely. I think it just takes a lot of work. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, the movie that you have been the executive producer for that's going to Sundance? Um, yeah, well, I have a I, um, so all of that work is under my portfolio. I'm the senior um, senior series producer for Opdocs, um, which is where I started when I came from when I came to the, to the Times, I think like eight years ago in 2011, and we published about 300 short documentary films. Um, they're all by independent filmmakers, um, everyone from you know Oscar winners, like very established filmmakers like Errol Morris, to emerging filmmakers like um, you know that the film that is going to Sundance uh, is derived from Opdocs, and it's part of a new arm at the New York Times that's breaking into documentary, but. 
it's um it's by a college student. Um, he's like he's still an undergrad at Harvard. Um, he's just kind of like a, a young prodigy named Lance Oppenheim. Um, and so my job there is to produce the films, to curate the films, to promote the films, like just basically to um, make sure that the Times is a destination for um, some of the best short documentary filmmaking in the world um, and nonfiction storytelling. And so that has been, and those are, those films are about everything. Uh, it's, it's really, we make our decisions on what we acquire based on both the content of the films, the relevance of the films, and also the style and creativity of the films. Um, and of course, we always have an eye for as diverse um, uh, a filmmaker base as possible. So filmmakers from all over the world, of all ages, and of course, at all stages of their career. Uh, so that's my main job. And so I'm going to Sundance tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and I'll be representing the Times there and um, you know promoting our films, et cetera. Uh, and then all the work that I did in, in sports this year um, through film uh, or in video form, that was uh, as part of our opinion video series. And so in uh, Opdox is part of that now. So that's with Adam Ellick and uh, my colleague Andrew Blackwell, Tate Jensen. I worked with um, a woman named Naima Raza, who was a producer there. And um, we, um, Alex Stockton, another producer, and um, together we, that, those are the films that we make. So those are the films where we actually do the journalism behind it. We script them out, we cast them, and it's our kind of proactive um, like films that we make and we produce and the, where we want to move the needle. And the key indicator of success for us is um, impact, which is obviously a nebulous, mm -hmm. nebulous term. But I think with... Um, with the work that we did on women's sports this year, which we grouped together into a series called Equal Play, um, I think we showed what impact through video and opinion video and opinion journal opinion video journalism, what that can really achieve. I have a nerdy question. If I can dive into a little bit more, I don't know if you can even talk about that, but how, is numerically, are you guys measuring impact in any way? Um, uh, I mean, it's hard to measure impact in mm -hmm. that way, right? I mean, obviously we saw that with Mary Kane's story, which came out of, you know, one thing leads to another always, right? Um, that film on YouTube, what is that at now? Nine million views or something. So I mean, if you if you want to call impact, mm -hmm. if you want to measure impact that way. I actually don't measure impact that way. I think mm -hmm. you could make clickbait and it could be that, uh, and it, you know, it could get maybe not that many views, but still. Um, uh, I think we look at impact as, in that case, uh, again, a multi-billion-dollar corporation that no one said would ever change, launching an investigation mm -hmm. into allegations of abuse by one of its most vaunted uh, celebrity coaches there. Um, uh, we look at Impact as that same company changing a policy that no one said it would ever even ex even re-examine um, and creating a policy. Uh, we look at Impact as its own employees who are known to really kind of stand in line with that company actually mar launching a protest um, even though um, on on the campus um, even though they were you know forbidden from talking to press they still marched and mm -hmm. they were still photographed uh, that that's what we consider impact and that's what we achieved yeah I like that um, how did you so actually two-part question how did you first end up at New York Times second what's it like working there um, the Times is an amazing place. Well, I guess I can start with how I got there, which is um, I was a history major in college. I moved to New York. 
<laughs> and I lived a block down from here on 37th between 5th and 6th above like a bunch of porn shops and a bodega that was full of mice and at one point we had like the mice had babies and it was like six of us and it was it was absolutely insane there was um, no pet cat to take care of that <laughs> uh, not in our apartment um, I don't know what the bodega was doing but apparently they did not have a cat um, it was just like a bunch of like rowers and runners from college so it was like it was a funny situation um, kind of like a flop house and so I lived there for a while and be, the rent was only $700 so that's how I could afford to live you know I had like a few mm-hmm. a few rounds of $700 in my bank account when I graduated from college because I earned a bunch of money while I was there and I was like I'm just gonna um buy a bunch of money like a few thousand dollars um and I was like I'm just gonna try to make this work and I uh, through a Craigslist ad, got a job with one guy who turned out to be a New York Times reporter. And then from there, I got handed around from reporter to reporter, um, helping them fact check their books on the side. Obviously, I had to get a real job um, in the meantime. And But I always, I always thought what they were doing, I was working in global health, I always thought what they were doing was really, really interesting and in some ways the most dynamic stuff that, it was what I always wanted to do, yeah. right? And um, so one of them handed me off to Jody Cantor and, um, she's the woman now that, it, um, went on to do the, um, with Megan Toohey to do the, um, Harvey Weinstein reporting and kind of launched the Me Too movement. And she helped me get a job at the Times as the job title was secretary then. Um, you know, it was, it was quite low level. It was the kind of job where, Usually you'd get it right out of college if you knew someone, um, but in my case I had to like build up that network and then you, then I could get that job through knowing someone. Um, and so she helped me get a job at the Times and so I was like starting all over. I was 26 and felt very old to be an assistant, um, but you know worked my way up from there and um, uh, always always in opdocs, always in this production role as that kind of role expanded at the same time um, doing the sports journalism on the side and um, that. It, that role expanded as well, and at this point, I've been fortunate enough to be able to combine them in an unofficial capacity, mm-hmm. but but still um, one that really seems to have it makes sense in retrospect. I think sometimes the most interesting jobs aren't the ones that you could just apply to, but the <laughs> ones that you carve out and create for yourself. People will help you out along the way, and that's wonderful. But ultimately, you can only answer to yourself. You're your own manager, and um, I've always kind of had a no excuses approach to, I guess, my job, my running, everything. Um, but I do, it was actually harder, moving to New York wasn't as scary because I had nothing to lose, but when I did leave my pretty good job, um, I was doing consulting for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, through a firm here, and when I did leave it, I took a pretty big pay cut to start over as like the assistant secretary at the Times, and that's that's when it was really hard because I was like, I'm not going to do this again, So and there was no path to promotion, um, so I just had to be really entrepreneurial at the New York Times, and Again, not expect someone to just like lay out a, a path for me, but to kind of create my own. But in in retrospect, I've it's almost like I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do. I just didn't know it was going to lead there. Right. It's like showing up for your training every day, doing the work. Yeah, but in this case, it was like I didn't know what the work was. Like none of the stuff in sports. I've never had like an editor who's like, "Go do this." Mm-hmm. Um, it's always been me being like, "Oh, I saw this on Instagram, and I wonder if there's a bigger story here that we could kind of draw like a broader trend." But in retrospect, it makes sense. I don't think that there are a lot of people that are paying attention to the um, themes and the athletes that I'm paying attention mm-hmm. to. Um, like I just when I when I think about distance running and what the women are doing these days, I get, I get so excited, and I think that. 
Um, this is a moment that Americans really should be paying attention to and watching. And um, if I can have even a small hand in that, it, that that's rewarding enough. That's great. So you will obviously go to the Olympic trial. Well, no, um, it's not my job at the time, so I don't know who would send me. Um, oh, no. I went, I went before, but now we have a, we have a sports desk that does have a, a number of distance runners on it, uh-huh. so I think they'll go cover it. Okay. Oh, the second part of your question: what it's like to work, work at the Times. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, it's a, it's a fascinating place. I mean, when I, when I started, I just thought it was, you know, the newspaper that I always wanted to work at, and now in in the current political climate, it's felt more sort of mission driven. Um, I think the need to continue to produce uh, vetted, verified, you know, the truth in our news. Um, I've never heard that more in question. Mm -hmm. And um, that feels like a really important mission. Um, At the same time, you know, I went to Harvard, and that was great. I really took for granted when I was there just how smart everyone was. And after I graduated, I thought I might never get to be in that kind of environment again where just pretty much everyone has something to say that's really interesting, even if even if it's not necessarily what you would have you know said or asked for even. Um, and the New York Times is like that too. Everyone is really, really smart and really, really interesting and really, really engaged. And what surprised me the most about working there is just kind of how nice and how courteous people are. I, I really thought it was going to be more cutthroat in in your face way and of course people are competitive like what I'm competitive too but um the coworkers are are really genuinely kind and caring and um passionate in a way that I I that continued to, to surprise me 8 years in That's great. I guess we're going in a little bit of reverse chronological yeah. order. We started with your recent race and then kind of worked our way backwards and gotten mm-hmm. you to the point how you got to New York Times. Um, let's go further back. Uh, <laughs> what was childhood like for Lindsay <laughs> in terms of like, maybe even did you run track or? Um, yeah, I, well, like a lot of American distance runners, I played soccer growing mm-hmm. up. Um, a lot of female distance runners at least. And um, I think that is a really great way for girls to get into sports. I think it's really fun. I think little girls should play. And I also think it prevents over-specialization at a young age. My favorite, I was always a forward and I love the running part, like running after the ball. Obviously I love scoring goals. Um, but what I didn't like is when I did score a lot of goals, I'd get taken out. And that always really bothered me that ultimately... So you did score a lot of goals, usually. Yeah, I was a really good soccer player. I loved it. Um, That's great. Like, I would go in the backyard and kick the ball to one side of the yard, run after it, and then kick it to the other side and run after it. And I, like, I don't know how long I would do that for, but a really long time. I just, like, I thought it was really fun. Um, And my friends all played, and I thought that was really great. Um, And in high school, I played it too, but then... Um, as I started, as I also did spring track and as I got better at it, I realized like, I loved not having any excuses. Like I love not being able to like blame a coach in my mind and say like, oh, I didn't do better because the coach didn't keep me in or, um, oh, I didn't do better because she didn't pass me the ball. Um, I really, I guess I've always been like somewhat independent and I really liked just being in control of how well I did. Um, even though if I failed, that was also up to me but I thought that was a really important lesson too and so I just increasingly as I got better in college I mean as I got better in high school I switched over and I got more and more into it and I was also a pretty serious student so I always really 
to me, they balanced each other out. It was like, mm-hmm. if running wasn't going well, at least I had school. If school wasn't going well, at least I had running. And um, I don't know that I would recommend that every high school girl be like that. But for me, it, it really... It was always it was a nice outlet, I guess, um, as opposed to just going all in on school. Um, the, I I remember like when I did get into college, that was when it got kind of hard for me because the um, uh, I didn't have the I didn't have the school part anymore to kind of balance it out. I was so tired, I was so like burned out of especially studying for math. That's funny. I'm like 35 now, and I still remember those like all nighters <laughs> for math class um, before math class before math tests and. Um, when I when I got when the school part of it um, wasn't as wasn't as much of a focus um, that that's when I got like so into running that I think I went a little overboard and I think it was a, a really good I think it was a good moment in my life to have that discovery because it made me never want to do it again it never it made me always want I mean especially as we you know shared the Mary Kane story I think a lot of girls and now women can connect to that and it taught me that what you think will make you better actually won't um but in some ways I'm kind of glad that I got that lesson because I think you could spend your whole life if you were someone like me just always feeling like you were never actually working hard enough and it taught me that that isn't I don't know that you don't want to take things too far I guess Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of distance runners do have that kind of compulsion towards extreme tendencies and I I certainly do but it it was a good it was the first time that I was kind of like okay like I do have the tendency to take things too far. So I should try to um, check myself on that. It's really valuable to recognize that. Yeah. I mean, those lessons are hard, but um, the hard lessons yeah. are often yeah. the best, right? Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. What was your favorite distance when you ran track? In high school? Or yeah, pol- um, both. <laughs> I guess the 15 was my favorite. And then I started, I mean, I guess a lot of people just like move up and up, right? Um, so... The fifth, I always like cross country, but I think I actually like the team element the most. I think um, the team element of cross country is something that's actually, I would always recommend that like if I had, if my friends had girls or if I have a daughter that they run cross country because I think it teaches you to run your own race, like to be a front runner, to perform, but that you're actually doing it with a team and for the team. Um, and so it teaches you also that you can be in fifth place, but still contribute. Um, but you contribute the most when you run your best time. Um, like again, we can't control how other people do, but we can control our own performance. And so I really did love cross country for that reason. Cause it made me feel like I was performing for something bigger than me, but also I couldn't just coast off the success of the group. Right. Um, but yeah, I was like the my I always like the fifteen hundred and um college I didn't have a great running experience. So I think I was still kinda of coming off some of the um uh hard earned lessons of the end of college and then also the Ivy League is just really competitive and I don't think I was good enough. And then um the marathon for me has really been uh where I've where I've enjoyed it. I think partly because track would always I would get so nervous before races. Um like I still remember that those like crippling nerves, and you need that. Like you need the adrenaline in order to run well. It's not like there's a shortcut there. Um, but that was really hard for me, and um, I've I've loved with the marathon that that actually is counterproductive. So mm-hmm. there's no point in having those nerves because by the time it gets hard, you're already so in it that you're invested. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that's. That's the review of my, my favorite things yeah, when it I love comes that. to running. I love the team-oriented aspect because you're also on a team at the Times. And mm-hmm. are you do you run with a team in the city? I run with Central Park Track Club. Um, I don't even know if I've ever actually run a race for them, but I train with them. And 
because um, I haven't really run many New York City races recently. I I kind of I've really liked with the marathon that I run a few halves and I take those halves really seriously. I run my workouts. I take those really seriously. And then the marathon I take extremely seriously, but that's like what once or twice a year max. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it is just kind of like, I just try to like work it into the fabric of my life without being too much of an emphasis. And I think for me, that's been the right progression. Like a ton of races in high school, college, you know, once a week or so. Um, and then afterwards it's just been, you know, run like race, like maybe once or twice a year. And that's, I I don't think everyone should feel this way, but for me, a strong emphasis on racing feels childish for me. Um, it feels like too much of a focus for where I am in my life. And, um, like I, I totally appreciate that it can be a great hobby for people, but, um, for me, it's like, I wanted to have other things and try not to be too obsessive about running. Um, good self-awareness <laughs> since we have weaved running back into the yeah. into the topic and come full circle um, if you had one training tip for our listeners it can be like very physiologically specific yeah. or something philosophical or like, I feel like you've given so many life tips that are relevant so any <laughs> kind of tip <laughs> yeah I think um, I think you should always show up to a starting line knowing that you can do it. I think that's been a really big mental transition for me is I used to start, I used to show up to the starting line hoping that I would get lucky um, and hoping that I could do it and just kind of waiting for this like extreme, almost like elation feeling at the end because I got away with something. And now when I show up to a starting line, I know exactly what I can do and that I've already kind of earned it. And so it's been funny though because it, it has – changed how I feel at the end where I don't necessarily feel that euphoria generally speaking because I don't I'm not surprised um and so instead of feeling people ask me all the time does running bring you joy and I'm like it does but what it really brings me is satisfaction Mm -hmm. and I actually think that's more powerful in some ways but it's not this sort of rush of adrenaline and any of the other hormones that they talk about like that runner's high it's more just like yeah I did that like it's done and I knew I could I love that you spoke like you've spoken like a very experienced yes. coach. I was gonna say that's that comes with experience. I think, yeah, yeah. yeah but I mean, I've I've been running now for what twenty years, so mm-hmm. which is crazy, but it's true. And I think if you haven't learned something in that time, like God help you, right? <laughs> like I don't know how you're you're either not trying hard enough or you're doing it in an yeah. unsustainable way. And I think at this point, I've reached a a a way in my approach to running where if I if I do it this way, I I can't hopefully do it for the rest of my life. That's great. Lindsay. Wait, wait, I have one question before it. we go. I know we have to go, but I saw on, um, I think it was your Instagram account that you recently got engaged. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I just want to say that. Thanks. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, do you guys, have you set a date or are you just enjoying it? Yeah, we're getting married in August in Rhode Island. Oh, so. that's amazing. Yeah. What a beautiful place and part of the time of the year. Yeah, yeah. I'm just glad he still wants to marry me after last year <laughs> <laughs> with the running and everything else. So yeah, it'll be great. Congratulations. Yeah, thank and you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all the work you do as well. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.